Enterprising in my surroundings I'm finding the quietest estates these days Just representation of storm brewing Amazed that the focus remains The vocal focal point of my change Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast I'm your host, Matt Chittam And this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there Who are working hard to get better While balancing running the rest of their lives. Oh, man, what a weekend. Just came back from the Richmond Marathon. What an awesome, awesome experience. Uh, Live shows with Kira D'Amato and Bart Yasso on Friday. Two legends, and they were absolutely fantastic. And the race itself, man, just met so many people who listened to this show. And uh, just, just a wonderful, wonderful experience. Met so many awesome people. And whether... No matter how your race goes and how, no matter your, your race went, I should say, it was just so nice to meet so many great people. It was just a, it really was a, a remarkable experience. And I cannot wait to go back, to go back. It was just so much fun. Just, oh my goodness. I can't even talk. I'm, I'm a little tired. <laughs> drove, drove all night, but here I am. I'm back home and I'm so excited not only for that experience, but also for today's podcast. Pon Sumhat, he is just an absolute beast. The Grand Slam of ultra running this past summer, four 100 milers over an 11-week span. And he's just an awesome, awesome guy. I had to know what goes into this sort of endeavor, not only during those 11 weeks or the, the, you know, the few months leading into it, but just the lifetime of running that goes into it. This guy is so fascinating and interesting. And this is something that so many people have a, a bucket list race of, all right, I want to do 100 miler someday, even if you're not currently an ultra runner, right? I'm not going to lie. It's on, it's on my bucket list. I don't know. I don't know when or if I'll ever get there, but it's on there. This guy's doing four in 11 weeks for the biggest races in America is truly a remarkable thing. And I couldn't wait to talk to him. Before we get into the episode, though, I want to give a shout out to Brio. That's right. Gift giving season is upon us and Brio is here for all runners. Anyone who's using their legs and their feet because I'm going to tell you, the Brio foot massager. Now, they have all kinds of massagers, all right? And I love the little uh, mini gun massager that I like to use on my legs pre and post run. That's great. Huge fan of it. But for me, the foot massager is where it is at. Not only for me, if you've heard this, heard the Rally Runner podcast before, then you know my entire extended family is in, this infatuated with the Brio foot massager. These are people who are on their feet all day, super, super active. My family is just, they are nonstop, man. They are nonstop. But when they do stop, occasionally in the mornings and at night. Their feet are in the Brio foot massager, and for good reason. It is heaven on earth. Go to us.brio.com forward slash rambling runner or just use code rambling runner at checkout. Save 25% on your order. And no matter what you no matter what you buy, you're going to love it. This company is just the best. They're the best. You're going to love it for sure. Go check them out. us.brio.com forward slash rambling runner to save 25% today. So, Let's get into it with Pon. Pon, thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome to the Rambling Runner. Thanks for having me, Matt. I am so excited to chat with you. You have had a very interesting summer and start to the fall. Someone who has done four iconic races here in the U.S. Talk to us about about the four races you did because we're talking to your. I'm sorry, the people listening to this are huge running fans. However, 
many of them may not be real savvy when it comes to ultras. So they may know a lot of ultra runners and love the stories behind some of some of those races and certainly some of the, the elites in the sport, but maybe aren't completely savvy with exactly all of the, the races that um, that people like yourself, you know, know so well. So tell people, you know, a brief summary of what you did over 11 weeks span, and then we're going to dive into not only that, but also you as well. Okay, so I um, I completed the Grand Slam of ultra running. Um, the Grand Slam, in not so many ways, it was started in 1986. Um, I think between a couple of race directors, including the um, race director of the Wasatch 100 mile endurance run at the time, and namely, it was basically to get um, people enthused in running like the for at the time, the four most iconic hundred milers that were in existence at the time in 1986, believe at that time it was, um, Western States, um, Vermont, uh, Leadville and Wasatch. So namely Wasatch would in theory be the last race and would be the placeholder in which, uh, to award people the, uh, award for completing the grand slam of ultra running. So, um, like throughout the years, there's been various different differences depending on like how um, the races that were available. I think like one year Western States had to cancel in 2008 and then another year, like one race wasn't available. So they had to fill in with like another hundred miler and like, namely, I believe like Old Dominion was made available some somewhat um, later during the duration of the Grand Slam. And then uh, most notably this year, uh, Vermont due to COVID had to be canceled. So the Grand Slam committee decided to ask Burning River to take its place. So, um, in essence, this summer, uh, this past summer, I, I completed Western States, Burning River, Leadville, and the Wasatch 100 mile endurance run. And what back to back to back to back over 11 weeks span, basically they're pretty evenly spaced out over the course uh, of the, of those months. Uh, and I'll tell you what, man, it is really exciting to see someone do something like just so awe-inspiring, right? Because there's so many people and there's probably a point in your life where you look at a 100-mile race, you're like, holy cow, like maybe one day. But that is, that is and it is, you know, a, a lot to take on, not just physically, but just mentally, just that kind of challenge. And, and to throw all of them out there in one summer is truly an amazing feat. That is for sure. And we should mention, you mentioned the committee. This is not something like that is, you know, one of the things where it's like commonly referred to as the Grand Slam. Like this is something that is, um, you know, has some weight behind it. It's not something that people just refer to that in passing or, you know, people who are in the know know about it. Like this is an official distinction. Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, obviously, I, uh, I mean, in, in its infancy in 1986, you know, I mean, obviously, as the years passed, you know, I, I think it became uh, less. I mean, initially, it was started kind of like an underground thing, kind of like a, kind of like a, a an agreement between race directors, and now, like um, in its modern day form, it's become a lot well more known, especially in the ultra running committee. I mean, community as and. Um, and for some non-ultra runners too as well. All right. So tell me about the registration for this because we hear all the time about just getting into, you know, 
So many ultras can, can be tough to get into, certainly more, some more than others. Western States is known with, with their lottery and the golden ticket um, scenario for so many runners who are trying to get in. What was the registration process like for you, and why did this year become the year that it worked out? Uh, so I initially began wanting to run Western States in around, like I guess, 2010, 2011. Obviously, at that time, um, you know, I wasn't fast enough to meet the qualifications, but I think at around like that period, like the qualifications were drastically different. You could actually use a 50 miler to qualify for Western States, provided you run the 50 miler and I believe under 11 hours. That has since changed, I believe, in like 2013, maybe 15. I, I don't exactly remember, but um, when I first applied for Western States in 2012, obviously I didn't get in. And then the following year in 2013, I didn't get in. And then 2014, I thought, Hey, you know, like probably not going to get in for a while, but you know, when I do get in, this might be my only shot and to get everything lined up in order, you know, I figured, Hey, why not just go for a grand slam when, when it does happen, obviously fast forward to 2020, I finally did get in. It was like eight years later. Um, and yeah, I just went for it. I just pulled the trigger, registered. For, you actually have to separately register for the Grand Slam to acknowledge your intent to want to commit commit to finishing those 400s. Which is a lot to take on, right? Because you've been wanting to be part of this race for a decade. And all of a sudden, it's like, all right, not only am I going to do that, but, I'm gonna, but this is going to be just like the first part of a much longer journey. And when you were thinking about Western States and you're planning for this and obviously you're, you're prepping your body and making sure that you're going to be getting to the starting line and as fit as possible. But at the same time, you must know a little better. Maybe this is what the question I'm going to ask is how are you able to dial in to Western States as the first leg of this endeavor, but also at the same time, prepare yourself for the fact that there's going to be another day, you know, after Western States and you got to be ready again. And the dichotomy between, giving that race the respect it deserves that you've been wanting to do for a decade, but at the same time, knowing that there's three more hundreds to go in, a, in pretty short order. So, um, lucky for me, I have a great coach. I, uh, Ian Torrance of Sundog running, and we had discussed earlier on, like what the game plan would be. So the full intent was to go into Western States, um, hard charging, uh, doing the best I can, given that race, all I, all I got. And, Obviously, provided that I finished, then we would continue the slam after that point. But the whole intent, I mean, my game plan was going into Western States and giving it all I got and at least finishing the, that race. If if anything at all, like the, the slam would have taken like um, kind of like a secondary backseat to as like a plan B to for um, for that summer. But Western States was the main goal. All right, so it wasn't like, all right, I get to the canyons, it's hot, and I'm like, I'm going to slow down a little bit because I got three more hundreds to go. It was like, no, 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 we're going all out for this baby. Yeah, I mean, and I remember, like, climbing up Devil's Thumb, I was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe, like, you know, like, I, I my, my quads are already screaming right now, and, you know, and I, I can't even think beyond, like, this current 100-miler I'm in, and I still have, like, three to go, and it's just just insane. I mean, like, uh, as you know, like that day, like I didn't even know anything about what was taking place at, at States until like my crew, like informed me, like at the finish that it was just like, 
the, the heat got to a lot of people. And I, I just, I mean, obviously it was getting to me too. I mean, uh, as soon as I crossed the finish line, I had to check myself into the med tent. It was just heat exhaustion just finally caught up to me. But yeah, I mean, I, I just, I had no idea about like the carnage that was going on around me at all. Like I was just doing my own thing. Well, I mean, that's probably a kudos to the people around you, you know, who are crewing you or just the people in the aid stations. You mean people you didn't even necessarily know who weren't going to like key you into that because I can see, I mean, shoot, I'm not going to pretend like I know everything about ultra running. I've never competed in an ultra, but I can imagine that there are moments where it could be a slippery slope between, you know, I'm going to continue here and, you know, maybe I'm not going to continue here. And maybe if you found out that like, shoot, you know, a large portion of the field is dropping, that that knowledge in itself could kind of create like this little escape hatch that you could kind of, you know, fall through if you, not if you so desired, but if you were in one of those low periods and low moments. Yeah. I mean, prior to every hundred that I do, like I always, um, I always meet with my crew and I, I always impart on them like, under no circumstances am I dropping unless A, I'm forced to because I don't make the cutoffs. B, like there's some serious life-threatening injury that may potentially befall on me that would prevent me from going on. And at that point, I would defer to them to let them pull the pull the plug. But um, my full intent with going in every 100-miler is that I'm either going to finish or, I mean... There's just no other option after that. You know, just go getting to that finish line is like my my main motivation. And I can imagine that you really have to, even if like, if someone were to give you truth serum of like, all right, do you actually feel that way? Or is that just like a mental mindset to, to get into a race? Like, I can imagine setting it up where you have to adopt that because if you don't, then you're, you will drop at, at certain points in the race when you're really just you know, where you can imagine that, like, I can't go on as opposed to taking, like, no, there is no plan B. There is, we've burned all the bridges. Come up with it, whatever cliche you want. Like, if, if we don't if we don't approach it that way, then I, I will find a reason to get out of this. Right. Exactly. I mean, especially with Western states, um, with the way the lottery is working nowadays and just more interest garnered from um, people in general and just how the lottery has been increasing in size exponentially each year it's you know you i mean i remember sitting down at an e-station and just talking to someone they're just like this might be our only chance you know like you're probably never gonna ever get another chance again to to be in this race or even enter this race just given the way things are going now so you know it's just when you're sitting there and you're having your crew hover around you you realize like you know you gotta get to that finish line. I mean, there's absolutely no other options. I mean, could you imagine, especially like, if, say, like if you're you've been in the lottery for year after year and not getting in, and finally this is your your last moment. <laughs> so it, it's just you have to put, you have to find, you have to actually allow yourself the the headspace to garner success to get to that finish line. You know, I mean, I I can't. I just can't describe like how vital it is to, I mean, especially within a race that, you know, like on a heavy playing field as Western States, you know, there's just, you just have to give it your all. So when you were going into the race, did you have, besides like, Hey, we're going to finish. Um, and you've done a ton of ultra. So like, it's not like 
finishing that kind of distance was beyond your capabilities, right? So I'm not even going to present that as a goal per se, and maybe you could tell me differently, but did you have certain goals going into the race? No, my only goal was just to, just to finish, especially it being like my first Western States. Every hundred miler is different. So you, you just don't know how your body's going to react from like, you know, obviously from like mile 10 to like mile 30, you know, you could feel good at one point and then it can put, completely turn like around at like mile 30 and then you're in like a deep dark place so going in i just had the goal of finishing you know obviously i wanted to give it my all but the weather dictated a lot of like how my pace went and then the terrain and then like my body itself you know oh absolutely and you know those those hot days man like you can't cool down on the run right that's one of those things it's like once you get moving like Unless the weather cools down, your body is not going to cool down, right? It's just kind of it seems like it's more about mitigating the heat and trying to, you know, suppress, you know, the the, the heat increase on your body. And as you as as you go through, and have you experienced races similar to this from either a heat and or dew point perspective, or maybe just sun exposure? And there are certain races, obviously, where. If you're just out in the sun all day, it's going to feel a lot hotter than maybe the, the thermostat says. But and anything that you could draw comparisons as you were progressing through the course? I mean, the closest I would come to it was when I ran Angeles Crest in 2015. Um, that race is, I mean, it's in Southern California. It's like from Wrightwood to the Rose Bowl in uh, downtown Pasadena. And that would probably come to come as close as it would to Western States in terms of um, weather and temperament. But I mean, with the temperatures that occurred on Western States that day, like I don't think I've never experienced anything like that in my entire life. Oh my God. And you've been racing a long time. All right. So when you would go back to when you started in ultras, was there a, a person that you looked up to that, you know, was kind of your entree into the sport or an event of some kind that really piqued your interest? How did you, how did you start down this path that obviously became such a big part of your life? So, um, in 2008, when I moved to San Francisco, um, I joined San Francisco CrossFit. I met, uh, this individual named Robert Tuller, a crazy guy. He finished, I believe, Wasatch like over, uh, at least a dozen times. Wow. Uh, and he, yeah. So, uh, obviously, um, I believe, I mean, like CrossFit was pretty, I mean, it's still big right now, but like, obviously it was like really taken off around that, that time period and CrossFit endurance kind of came entering the fold where, you know, not specializing like specific, like distance or, or whatnot, but yet like becoming a master of like all distances and, encompassing also strength training through traditional use of CrossFit and whatnot. And Robert Tuller had kind of garnered interest in like the small group and running ultras. And he pretty much got a whole handful of people to run this crazy ultra marathon race at the time. It was called the Quad Dipsy. It was 28.4 miles on the famed Dipsy Trail in Marin County. Um, however, uh, I guess the, the most famous race is the Dipsy, the single Dipsy, where you just run leaves about like a seven mile stretch from downtown mill valley all the way to stinson beach this one you're running out and back out and back to equal 28.4 miles which is a short distance ultra marathon however you're accruing approximately i want to say like 
over 9,000 feet of elevation gain. And if you total that with the drops, it's over 8,000 feet of elevation change. So um, that was my first ultra marathon. I finished that and I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe anybody does this. Like my legs are screaming. I couldn't get off the couch for like a week. Right. And and to put that into perspective, that's basically the same kind of profile in terms of elevation gain that you would see at the, the, the big name events that you see all across the world, right? In terms of elevation gain per mile, right? You'd see like 100 mile, 100 mile that hits like 30,000 feet in elevation gain, which is the exact same ratio that you're talking about here. Yeah. And uh, it was, so basically after finishing that race, you know, like Tuller just, I mean, he just got me started on going to 50K and then a 50 miler and then 100K. And then obviously, you know, I, I finally made that jump to a hundred miler and, um, it was there that I realized that, I mean, he had told me like stories of his, his like wartime days doing ultras when his earlier age and like how he did, um, the grand slam. And that kind of piqued my interest. And I was just like, wait a minute. So you're telling me you ran four 100 milers in one summer and you did that because, <laughs> you know, but because I, it was I, I there, right? At, I at guess that's time, yeah, yeah. And at that time, I was just like, you know what? I, I, I would just be happy with running a single 100 miler. And yeah, uh, the, 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 the seed was planted and it took, kind of took off from that point. And obviously, you know, being involved heavily with CrossFit is, you know, a, a culture where some really good athletes who work really hard, who really push themselves. So in that sense, not a huge departure from, you know, high-end ultra running where people are also really good athletes who really want to push themselves. However, you're talking about two very different disciplines in terms of maybe um, the kinds of workouts you're doing, whether it's, you know, long-distance endurance versus more explosive exercises. So what was the connection there between CrossFit and ultra running that either, you know, Tuller kind of really got into and or your your group of people who really you know were able to commune around not only CrossFit but also endurance running at the same time. I think it was just our shared love of the trails. Um, I mean, being in the San Francisco Bay Area, there's just no shortage of uh, trails. I mean, you have just an endless trail system, and um, yeah, it was just a bunch of like-minded individuals who just wanted to, you know just hit the trails, the local trails on the weekends and just run long distances. However, I, uh, kind of fell out with CrossFit after, um, shortly after, I guess like 2014, I just realized it wasn't sustainable in terms of like ultra running training and, and doing CrossFit. So I completely like shifted over towards more of a running focus and a traditional trying to kind of method towards building up for like long distance ultras. Uh, obviously I love CrossFit and, and it's great, but it just wasn't able, I, I wasn't able to sustain doing what, um, you know, obviously like traditional CrossFit workouts towards like running trails. It just didn't work out. Now, did you keep up with any of the exercises, right? It's one thing to do Olympic lifts and things of that nature. And obviously CrossFit is much more than Olympic lifts, but that can be a heavy dose of what a CrossFit workout of the day can be can consist of. Um, so did you stick with some of those lifts and just say, hey, I'm not doing this for time anymore. I'm just going to be lifting in the gym. Or did you kind of do a complete shift from a strength standpoint? It, it was a complete shift. So, you know, obviously a lot of, um, the CrossFit workouts are, 
either for time or for rounds. And um, now it's more like uh, I'm focused singularly more on like um, single leg movements, stuff that would actually be more applicable to trail running. Uh, and it's not to take anything away from CrossFit. I think it's a it's, it's great programming. However, um, you know, different strokes for different folks and you just have to find what works for you. Right. I mean, hey, if, if you're if you start saying, hey, my priority is now is running like then you want to do the things that fit well with running. So, I mean, it makes all the sense in the world. It's just the same reason that you wouldn't be like, hey, I really want I really want to be like the best sprinter around. I'm going to do 100 mile weeks. It's like, what? It doesn't, yeah. <laughs> doesn't really yeah. fit your goals, man. I mean, if you want to do 100 mile weeks, great. But not if you want that to be your goal. Um, so that that is interesting. What was it like for you? From a community perspective, right? Because you got into the ultra scene through this one community, but then obviously as you're building up through the races and just hitting the trails all the time, were you did you ingratiate yourself into the larger, you know, San Francisco Bay Area ultra scene, or what was that like? Yeah, I mean, um, I started attending like running clinics. I started, um, and there I was able to meet. Uh, well, I started joining another running group um, called the Endurables. At the time, um, it was headed by Jim Vernon back in like, I want to say like 2012, 2013. It's now defunct, of course, but I, you know, that was like my first experience ingratiating myself with um, the, the ultra running community at, at that point in time. And I actually made a lot of good lifelong friends from that running group and I still keep in contact with them to this day. However, as the years passed, you know, like, People started moving out of the area. And then um, ultimately, I think up until finally in 2020 with COVID coming, like I was mostly out doing solo training on my own, which was kind of unfortunate at the time. But due with the, like the restrictions, it was like everything limited with group size out on the trails. And, you know, nobody wanted to get caught with like Karen out on the trail, like pointing out with people like, hey, you shouldn't be gathering with that group size or, you know, you shouldn't be running with other people right now. So. Yeah. The beginning of COVID was so weird in retrospect. We think about it now, we're like, oh, we didn't know how the, we didn't know how the virus moved. So we're like, it could be anywhere. It could be anywhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, uh, I mean, I still keep in touch with a lot of the, the folks um, that I met through the Endurables. And um, yeah, I mean, in, in the Bay Area, especially when you're out on the trails, like you just, you run into a lot of people and uh, especially on the trailheads, you, you're just like, Hey, you know, like I see you running this route every, like every weekend, what's your name? And you, you know, you stand a hand and you just meet people and make friends that way. So. Absolutely. And just as someone who loves running content and, and the people within the, the, the running scene is fun for me to listen to like Mario Fraioli and, and Dylan Bowman talk about their time in San Francisco running the running community. And Dylan's not there anymore, just like you're not, but uh, to hear like, just the amazing people that they seem to be running into constantly and the people that they were able to connect with. It, it really does seem uh, like a truly special place, not only for ultra and ultra, but just kind of anyone who is really serious about getting outside and running. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I could definitely say like my time in the Bay area. I mean, I, I definitely grew not only as a person, but I mean, well, not only as a trail runner, but as a person and, it's it's just the the variety and terrain and like the trails that you get out there. I I mean, I, I 
I would have, I would wager to say like, it's probably the, some of the best trails in the United States. So here you are. So this was, you know, over a decade ago when, when you got involved in this and here you are doing some amazing things over a decade later and in the trail and ultra world, um, you know, it's almost like dog years for some people, <laughs> yeah. right? It can be, the, the training can be grueling, certainly enjoyable, but it can be huge efforts and the races can be huge efforts. So, um, you know, the, getting that sustainable progress over time and just be able to stay in the sport and continue doing something that you love is something that escapes certain people and some of them that they're not able to hold on to for a variety of different reasons. So let's talk about your longevity because it's a real thing. Why do you think that you've been able to not only stay in it, but here you are doing amazing things over a decade in? So um, aside from a great coach, I, I think um, also surrounding myself with um, people that you know, have my best interests at heart, like namely like my wife. Um, obviously like she sees me training day in and day out and she keeps, you know, like obviously like niggles like, or little like pains that come creeping in during training, you know, she obviously imparts on me, like, you know, you need to rest, you need to back off a bit. Obviously. And, you know, as the years creep up, you know, like I'm, I just turned 40 this past summer and, and me too uh, my man and me you know, too. <laughs> crawling out of bed it, it's just you know it's not like you were spry in like your early or mid-20s where you could just recover the next day and it's just now you have to take a more um pragmatic approach of in terms of training that and you have to realize like you're not going to recover like you used to when you were like 25 and obviously like making sure that you do your easy runs, keeping them easy and also taking your recovery days as needed. And, you know, when it's time to push hard, push hard. How has your nutrition evolved over time? Oh, gosh. Um, and not just race day nutrition. Obviously, race day nutrition has evolved for no other reason than there are just so many more products than there used to be. Just, But just general, like, life nutrition. Um, so being in CrossFit, I guess the biggest movement back then was, like, the paleo diet movement. I mean, that... That uh, kind of, I mean, it was good up to a point. And then I realized, like, when you're running long distances, like, cutting out carbs is not the answer. <laughs> and the thing is, is, like, I could even see CrossFit being worse for keto. Yeah, yeah, than, exactly. Than endurance running. Because, and I know it's, like, kind of part and parcel with that sport. But, like, you're doing high-intensity I mean, literally, it's called it's called hit training. That's literally in the name. So, like, you need sugar more than anything when you're doing those kinds of exercises. Where you could argue, and I know it's different for male and female, but there are certain males who can go out and do a longer run, fasted, burning fat. If they're at a certain, you know, not a huge population of people who can do this, but there are certain people who can. But no one can like push 100% anaerobic capacity like on fat. It's just it's physically impossible. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, I came to learn of that like very early on. And, um, and besides I, I, I just love carbs way too much to <laughs> completely learn them from my diet. So now, I mean, uh, obviously I, I strayed away from that and now it's more like a directed approach in terms of like, I'm not actually, I mean, it's not like a methodical thing, but you know, if I know I have a big effort, like, um, the next day or something, then I make a do do point to get in at least enough nutrition in terms of like carbs and protein to recover. And obviously like 
post-workout or post-run uh, recovery nutrition is a huge importance to me too. So I just make sure that I have enough protein and enough carbs that will recover for, say, like back-to-back runs on weekends. So Right. Obviously, you're putting in the kind of sustained efforts where it's like, all right, I'm assuming that, you know, calorie consumption is more of like, I need to make sure I have enough as opposed to like, make sure that I'm restricting, right? Because you're just putting in these huge efforts. So are there certain foods that you want to make sure that you are incorporating, if not on a daily basis, you know, fairly regularly uh, with your eating plan? I say that to say like, I don't want to talk about like restrictions, especially with people who are running a lot, right? I don't think it's a useful concept, but more of like, all right, these are the foods I want to make sure that I'm eating. In addition to like, even like the, the more maybe fun stuff or however you want to term it. Um, it's nothing, anything. I mean, I don't eat anything special. So like, I guess my main staple is like, um, white rice, um, and then potatoes. And I mean, and obviously like I eat a plethora of like colorful vegetables and, uh, do you, the main do you really, I, I know you're supposed to eat colorful vegetables <laughs> and everyone says it. And I think I've said it too. I can't say that I actually do it. Do you actually eat the, the, the rainbow when it comes to the veggies? Yeah, and I I have my wife to thank for that because um, she's a <laughs> she's a huge proponent of making sure you get your greens and um yeah I mean I, I I mostly leave that up to her and she leaves me up to me to make sure like our protein sources there and you know obviously she's not big on protein but um I I make sure that you know we together like we complement whatever is missing from our diets and you know so I get the vegetables from her and she obviously makes sure like whatever protein she needs, she gets from me. So there you go. All right. So let's talk about training leading into Western States. All right. So say the three or four or five, six months leading in. All right. So basically be the start of 2021. What did it look like just from like a weekly and monthly basis uh, in terms of mileage, how in elevation gain, how did that compare to previous years and how, if at all, did you incorporate faster efforts? So, um, you know, t- training definitely looks different. I mean, especially we, we were, we were finally here in Ashland. So, I mean, but then COVID was still, obviously the restrictions were still here. So running in groups is like kind of like a big no, no, but, um, with Ashland, the, the funny thing is, is like to get to any trailhead, you're going to accumulate at least a thousand feet. Um, so on average, it's, n- especially being a runner here in Ashland, it's not, un- it's not uncanny to at least accumulate like an average of 10,000 feet per week. Wow. Um, so I was, and I've traditionally been kind of like a low mileage guy, obviously, you know, high mileage works for some people, but for me and my work schedule and, um, just the way my body recovers, I've always been like hovering around like the 40 to 50 eh, and sometimes I'll push into 60 miles per week. But, um, on a given week, it w- I think it was around like anywhere from 45 to 55 miles per week for me and like over 12,000 to 14,000 feet of gain. Um, training for states, it's not the climbs that really get to people. It's the net downhill. It's a very deceptive course where, I mean, if you look at the profile on paper, it's, I mean, there are a lot of areas that it's runnable. Yeah, you hear that all the time, that like the, the profile makes it look like not the hardest course around, but that it's tricky. Like you have to know when and where to push. Yeah, exactly. And um, 
And obviously like the temperature changes, like when you're going from the high country down to like the canyons, it's, I mean, the temperature changes astronomical. And uh, I, I mean, you just have to, you have to trust yourself and your training to understand how, how you can methodically push and then hold back at certain parts. Because I mean, a hundred miles is a long way to go. And if you kind of dig yourself, I mean, if you dig yourself into a hole early on, it's hard to pull yourself out. Yeah. So you mentioned the, the mileage in the elevation gain, which basically amounts to like basically 200 feet of elevation gain per mile or so on yeah. average, right? Yeah. Obviously each, <laughs> each mile is different and, and certain weeks can be different. So when you're doing the, the 50 to 60 and sometimes even down to the 40s miles per week, what are the things that you're doing? Because you have a full-time job, so you, you can't just devote yourself to training here. So what are some of the the big weekends or big days or double headers in training that you do to prepare yourself for race day um, beyond the fact that you have a lifetime of fitness leading into these races? So it's not like you're you know, it's not like your training is simply what you're doing in the lead up. You have a whole decade of training that are preparing you. But what are you doing for those big efforts that can prepare you for race day without doing the huge weekly mileage that you know some of your um, some of your friends are doing? So, I think from uh, one standpoint, it was the most important thing that I really worked on this time around was nutrition. So just being able to, I mean, I've never been great on like um, eating enough or drinking enough. But, uh, I, I, I started working with a nutrition nutritionist and we slowly worked on getting more, I mean, working on digesting more fluids and also taking in more carbohydrates. I, I believe I started like anywhere from initially like 30 grams of carbs to finally like at the end, um, close to a couple of months out before States like comfortably taking in over 90 grams of carbs or just under 90 grams, but close to pushing close to 90 grams of carbs per hour. And then in terms of fluid, I'm a heavy sweater. Uh, so, um, obviously it's impossible to replace all the fluids that you lose, but we pushed it to, to as close as I believe like 40 ounces per hour. And in Holy a race like, cow. yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not joking. I, I, I sweat buckets. So, that is wild. Yeah. Uh, so in a race like Western States with the heat, you know, that's like a huge worry. So, um, we really had to work on that. And, uh, and obviously given I'm not like a high mileage guy, I mean, that was probably one of the key, I mean, most people don't think of like nutrition per se as like part of your training, but you know, aside from like, you know, training yourself to climb, training yourself to be a fast downhill runner or being able to subject your quads to downhill running. Like I would say like the, the key part of my low, lower mileage to account for that was, um, training myself to eat. Cause I realized like, you know, if you can, if you can keep feeding yourself, you can keep moving. All right. Well, let's talk about that because you're right. Like, if you stop feeding yourself, then the engine's going to shut, right? We're not, we're not cars, but if there is no gas, this is not going to happen, right? So that's that's one way uh, where that comparison does make sense. However, I love the fact that you don't put a physical limit on yourself as long as you have the fueling, which is interesting because um, for me, that's like again from afar as a as a as a 
non-existent ultra runner, but someone who has run marathons and has trained and trained other people to run marathons. I would imagine the physical nature of this being so intimidating that it's like, all right, how do I build up just the tolerance in my muscles and connective tissue to be able to handle the wear and tear? So at what point in your ultra career did you realize that, hey, if I have enough fuel, I can just always keep going? Like, when did you break that barrier? Um, you know, I don't think I ever mentally was like aware of that point. I mean, I kind of just, you know, I've always told myself, especially like, um, going into these, like, you just have to have a deep sense of belief in like your own training and your history as a runner that you, ha that you carry that confidence going in that knowing that you can do this, um, given obviously I think yearly, I mean, on average, like I've been completing at least one hard miler each year leading up to, uh, finally getting the Western States and that in and itself had accumulated a, a, a bunch of confidence in me to be able to realize, you know, especially like signing up for, I mean, from like my first hundred miler to like my second, my third, like, I mean, especially like the, talking to like my pacers and my crew, they're like, you know, there's a huge difference from your first hundred miler to your second. You got to realize like you just went from elementary school, hundred miler to graduate level, hundred milers. And those most notably, but like with each of the hundred milers, like most of them were, if not just Western States qualifiers, they're also jointly hard rock qualifiers. So I think mentally that gave me the confidence also to realize like I've completed some of the toughest 100 milers in the United States and going in that hopefully when I reach that day of at the starting line of Western States, that I have that confidence in the back of my mind, realizing that I'm a competent 100 miler and I can do this. All right. So you've, as we've mentioned, you've done a bunch of 100 milers before summer of 2021. What was the closest together you've had ultras in your past leading into the Grand Slam? So um, I've never done multiple races in like one year or let alone one summer. I've, I mean, honestly, this was like going to be I, going in. I, I was in unknown territory. I mean, I in no man's land. So it was basically between my coach and I, we were just like, you know, we're going to do this, but we'll figure it out kind of as, as we go with each hundred miler, you know, I mean, there was no assurances that I was going to finish each single, each of those hundred milers, let alone, let alone like Western States. It was just, you know, it was just going for it. I mean, realizing like the timing and, you know, I'm turning 40, I'm not getting any younger. And, you know, this, just the way like the stars align and getting in the Western States and then getting into Leadville and then getting the Wasatch, you know, and then having burning river right there. It, I mean, the stars just align perfectly at that point, but you know, the main goal of course is like to execute and, you know, and obviously realistically, like a lot of things went into it, like resources that, you know, I didn't have at my disposal, but, um, obviously I've never like run multiple, like long distance races to build that confidence, especially multiple hundred milers, let alone like, um, in a single summer or even in a single year. So it was basically just <laughs> holding on for dear life and hoping that I could do it. Right. Cause you just mentioned like the key is you got to have belief. Yeah. However, how do you have belief 
if you're doing something that you've never done before, right? And I think that's one of those things where no matter what endeavor we're talking about, and it doesn't even have to be athletic, right? It can be in your professional life or in any other area of your life, right? Like if you don't have 100% certainty, how can you have belief? And I guess that is the the essence of faith in some, in some degree. Um, so let's talk about your recovery plan because that seems like be just as important as these race day strategies. So you finish Western States, you have a few weeks before till your next race. What was the plan and what was the execution? So um, from my coach's perspective, it was just to get, get, get my body moving as much as possible. You know, like whether it was hiking or, or walking or getting on uh, the recumbent bike and just spinning my legs out. And then, um, obviously the hardest race to recover from out of, um, the four was Western States. Like it literally took probably over a week for my, my, and my feet were just completely swollen. It took like over a week to finally get the swelling down where to the point that I could actually start running. And then even then at that point it was, um, we weren't running that much. It was just merely to speed up the recovery process and just to get myself to feel normal again. And it, Darn near took like, I think three weeks to finally start feeling normal again. So did you still have the cobwebs or rust or whatever from Western States when you towed the next starting line? Um, surprisingly, no, I, I, I think, I, I mean, I don't know how to explain it. It was like, and there were a couple of people who have done the slam previously. And I've read their blogs where like their body just, you know, especially as I continued on after each hundred miler, like the recovery process actually was um um decreased like the speed the speed of the recovery was like increased and um I, I was just i remember especially after burning river it only took me like maybe one or two weeks or actually probably like no took about a week to finally recover but um yeah i mean it, it western states was by far the hardest to recover from and when you're entering these races after western states the following three what do you have a pacing strategy or is it like is it determined by the the nature of the course whether it's the elevation the technical nature of the course like how do you decide what race pace is for a 100 miler so going to um each of these 100 milers you always have to have a plan i, I mean ask anybody in my crew i'm the master of spreadsheets like excel spreadsheets and i mean obviously um i didn't have a time goal in mind but I did give like broad time ranges to when to expect me and what could take place. And, um, I had that lined out and then, um, based on the tracker or whether my crew was able to see me, they would be able to gauge like my effort at that point and how I'm moving and where, you know, from one point to the, the next A station where I would be expected to arrive. And they based off, based off of that data, they were able to, um, to determine like roughly where I would finish. Now, did you have points in this grand slam that eclipsed or were equal to the most suffering that you had had in a race leading into 2021? No, no. Like, uh, probably the hardest, the, the hardest hundred miler I've ever run was in 2019. And that's prior to getting the Western States. And I was at the big horn one hundred miler in, um, Wyoming. And that by far was the most suffering I've ever had in my entire life. But, um, surprisingly the slam 
while it did have many difficult moments, it wasn't nearly as bad as what it experienced in um, 2019 at Bighorn. Interesting. I would, I just assumed that this was going to be the, the, that you would have one of those moments considering the, the nature of the events that you were in. That is for sure. And, uh, and, and I was always like waiting for it to happen. But <laughs> I mean, luckily, knock on wood, like nothing, nothing really, uh, nothing really crept up. Now, what would you do from a gear perspective as someone who's sweating so much? And I can imagine chafing being really restrictive and then all of that. Were you changing shirts a lot, changing other gear a lot? Um, you know, as again, I'm, I'm kind of, I guess I'm kind of middle of the road from a sweat perspective, but I know that, you know, once your gear gets really sop and wet, it can be, God. It can be the worst with the, from a chafing perspective. And obviously you don't want things to snowball too much in that, in that realm. Yeah. I mean, surprisingly, uh, I mean, with the, the climates, especially out here, uh, I mean, on the West coast, it wasn't humid. So anytime, I mean, especially running at, uh, in the high country, like anytime I sweated, you know, it was like, it kind of just evaporated really quick. So oh, thank it, God. like, yeah, in terms of that, it wasn't really an issue except for burning river where it was raining nonstop for like the first four hours and start of the race. And, I mean, it's Ohio is humid. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm born and raised a East Coaster. I haven't like, I mean, that was my first time back in like several years. I was just like, oh my God, it's so humid <laughs> in Ohio. Um, where we, where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Northern Virginia. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, actually, drove through, drove through there this summer. Um, I was heading back down there in two weeks or a week and a half for the Richmond Marathon. Oh, okay. Yeah, obviously it's not right near, but in the general vicinity. Um, all right. So looking back on this endeavor, and you're not so far removed where you're, you know, sometimes when we go through really hard things, our perception of it can lessen the dull, it can kind of dull the hard edges over time. And we don't remember them for as painful or as hard or as challenging as they were in the moment. But looking back on it now, we're still fresh what does your takeaway in terms of how you executed this grand slam and what you personally are capable of doing? So, uh, in executing the slam, it's, you know, you have to take it 100 miler at a time, obviously. Uh, That's a lot longer than <laughs> one step at a time. <laughs> yeah, it is. But <laughs> you know, you, you approach each race and give it the respect that it deserves. Um, the one thing about the slam is that, um, it Leadville by far. And if you choose to do in that order, because there are the various orders that you can do to slam, you don't have to do Western States or you don't even have to do Leadville, but depending on the order that you choose and the order that I went in, Leadville by far is the single, the, it's essentially the crux of um, the slam where it eliminates the most people. Um, not only because of the, due to the fact that it's uh, hovers anywhere from, you know, an average of like 11, I mean, 10 to 11,000 feet on average, but, um, the cutoffs are really tight and it's a 30 hour overall cutoff for the race. So I, I believe it was at, at that race where climbing over the hope pass for the last time and descending that I realized like I could actually finish like all four. I mean, I could complete the whole series. That is awesome. Now you've had Western States 
as like a goal of yours for such a long time. And then obviously the Grand Slam manifested itself once the Golden States, once Golden States, once Western States became a reality. Now you've done it. You've done all of these things. So do you, have you had time to think about what, what your next goal is or challenges, or is that just not something that's, you know, always uh, top of mind with you and your athletic pursuits? So uh, I'm, I'm not, when I tell people about doing these things, it's, it's not so much the crossing the finish line. That's my end goal. I'm, I would describe myself more as a process driven person. Like I enjoy the training. I enjoy getting outside every day. Just, you know, the pure essence of like strapping on a, a, a bladder or a pack and just getting out there and challenging your body and pushing yourself. Um, and when I come back, you know, I feel like I'm a better person, not only just physically, but like mentally. And I, I mean, obviously the, the icing on the cake is crossing that finish line, you know, and just earning that finish. Um, but with that in mind, I mean, I, I do have races that I do want to accomplish. And I mean, most notably, I, I just a couple of days ago, I, I uh, or rather yesterday, I put myself into the hard rock lottery. Um, I got a, I think I have at least three or four years in there. So keeping my fingers crossed for that one. Man, you're just checking them off, going after every big one. This is, this is really exciting. I really appreciate you coming on. This has been so instructive and there's just not many people who have not only tried to attain their goals in such a proactive way, but have gone and not only had the chance to do it, but then double down and up the ante like you did with the Grand Slam. And that, that, that really is truly inspiring. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It is so appreciated. Matt, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Han, thank you so much for coming on the show. What an incredible guy. I mean, it's like the humbleness from this gentleman is um, as amazing as his as, as, blah, 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 is as amazing as his athletic endeavors, the feats that he's been able to put together. Um, just, a, just a remarkable human being all the way around. I was so excited to get him on the podcast. Just such a great guy. Give big shout out to Brio. Go to us.brio.com forward slash rambling runner or use code rambling runner at checkout to save some serious dough on some wonderful gifts. Either gifts for your family, your friends, or maybe just for yourself. Nothing wrong with that. Thank you so much for listening. And happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of In Post Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.